optimal minimal. At this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. Can I ask you a personal question? Now we're just in a broken time. What if I did the opposite? I'm a cybernetic organism, living tissue over a metal endoskeleton. This episode is brought to you by Peloton. I love Peloton. Peloton is a cutting-edge indoor cycling bike that brings live studio classes right to your home. You don't have to worry about fitting classes into your schedule, making it to the studio, or dealing with some commute to the gym. I have a Peloton bike in my master bedroom at home, and it is one of the first things that I do in the morning. I wake up, meditate for 20 minutes, and then I knock out a short 20-minute ride, usually high-intensity interval training or HIT. Then I take a shower and I'm in higher gear for the rest of the day. It's beautifully convenient and has become something that I actually look forward to. And I was skeptical in the beginning. I didn't think I would dig it. And I really do. So you have a lot of options. For one, if you like, you can ride live with thousands of other Peloton riders from across the country on the interactive leaderboard to keep you motivated. I tend to use a lot of the classes on demand and have four to six of them that I've bookmarked and use over and over again. There are up to 14 new classes every day with thousands of classes on demand and there are a variety of workouts to choose from 45 minute classes 20 minute burns hip-hop rock and roll low impact or high intensity pick the class structure and style that works for you peloton has an amazing roster of incredible instructors in new york city they really do have great instructors of every possible personality and style and you can find one that you love no matter what you're in the mood for personally i use matt wilpers a lot but i use a bunch of them i'm promiscuous and enjoy classes from a lot of their instructors with real-time metrics, you can track your performance over time and continue to beat your personal best. I did not think the gamification would work for me, and uh, they really hit the nail on the head. It does work, at least for me, tremendously well to keep me pushing consistently. So, discover this cutting-edge indoor cycling bike that brings a studio experience to your home. Peloton is offering listeners of this podcast a limited-time offer. Go to OnePeloton.com, that's spelled O-N-E-P-E-L-O-T-O-N.com, Enter the code TIMPODCAST, all one word, at checkout and get $100 off accessories with your Peloton bike purchase. Get a great workout at home anytime you want. Go to OnePeloton.com and use the code TIMPODCAST to get started. This episode is brought to you by Zapier. Z-A-P-I-E-R. You may, in your own mind, say Zapier, but it's not Zapier. It's Zapier, like happier. They are a new sponsor, but not new to me as a service at all. I've been using them for many years now. If you run your own business, think about all the hours and hours, maybe endless hours you spend moving information from one software program to another, all because they don't easily work together. Well, now they can automatically, thanks to Zapier. My team has been using Zapier for years, as I mentioned, which helps us with a ton of tasks including, let's just take one example, connecting Facebook ads campaigns to our email platform. You can also, as I do, automate the posting of your Instagram photos to all social platforms. This has saved me and my team hundreds of hours alone. My team has also raved about Zapier support, which is very important. If things go sideways, you want to be able to reach someone. And in their words, it is in a class of its own. A class of its own, that's the exact verbatim quote from one of my employees. As with all sponsors of this podcast, we try to test everything ourselves, and we have used Zapier as full-paying retail customers. That is, we paid for the service long before we ever had contact with the company as a sponsor. They support 
more than 1,500 business applications, so the possibilities for automating processes are virtually endless. You may know, if you've read The 4-Hour Workweek, that the third step is automation. Not adding headcount to a messy problem uh, to try to fix it, but automating as much as possible. You want to eliminate, automate, and only then delegate. And Zapier is one of the best pieces of automation software that I've ever come across. Uh, it connects all of your business software and handles work for you, so you can focus on the things that matter most, the things you're good at for instance, instead of trying to cobble stuff together or code. To learn more and try it out, go to zapier.com slash Tim, connect the apps you use most, and let Zapier take it from there. You can do a million things. As one more example, Zapier lets you instantly engage with leads, send them to a CRM or spreadsheet, and then notify your team so they can act fast. And uh, like I mentioned very briefly, the beautiful part is that you can build the solution you need in minutes without writing code or asking a developer for help. So join the 4.5 million people or more at this point who are saving an average of 40 hours per month by using Zapier. Now and for a limited time, try Zapier free by going to our special link, Zapier, Z-A-P-I-E-R dot com slash Tim. That's Zapier dot com slash Tim for your free 14-day trial. Check it out, Zapier com slash Tim. Hello, boys and girls, ladies and germs. This is Tim Ferriss, and welcome to another episode of The Tim Ferriss Show. My guest today has a bio that reads almost as unbelievable. Adam Grant. Adam Grant is an organizational psychologist at Wharton, where he has been the top-rated professor for seven straight years. It didn't always start out that way, and we're going to talk about the very beginning. He is an expert in how we can find motivation and meaning and lead more generous and creative lives. He is the number one New York Times bestselling author of four books that have sold more than 2 million copies and have been translated into 35 languages, Give and Take, Originals, Option B, and Power Moves. His books have been recognized as among the year's best by Amazon, The Financial Times, Harvard Business Review, and The Wall Street Journal, and been praised by J.J. Abrams, Richard Branson, Bill and Melinda Gates, Malcolm Gladwell, and many, many others. Adam hosts the TED podcast, Work Life, that's one word, Work Life, capital W, capital L, and his TED Talks have been viewed more than 20 million times. His speaking and consulting clients include Google, the MBA, the Gates Foundation, among others. He has been recognized as one of the world's top 10 Most Influential Management Thinkers, Fortune's 40 Under 40, and a World Economic Forum Young Global Leader, and has received Distinguished Scientific Achievement Awards from the American Psychological Association and the National Science Foundation. Adam writes for the New York Times on work and psychology and serves on the Department of Defense Innovation Board. He received his BA from Harvard and his PhD from the University of Michigan, and he is a former magician and junior Olympic springboard diver. Adam, welcome to the show. Thank you, Tim. Great to be here. <laughs> and uh, this is one of those pictures from the bio that if I were creating a character in a novel, I, I feel that my editor would encourage me to clip back on. You have a very impressive, not just bio, but timeline and the amount you've done in a very, very compressed period of time. So I think we're going to talk a lot about productivity habits and things that are related to that. But I, I want to just bring up a few other quotes. Some of the quotes are from media. This one is from the New York Times. Quote, Grant took three years to get his PhD and in the seven years since has published more papers in his field's top tier journals than colleagues who have won lifetime achievement awards. And uh, then uh, there's another note from one of our mutual friends, uh, which says when another Wharton professor got tenure, he opened his speech by saying, 
quote, I'm so grateful to be in a place where everyone is focused on the same research question. How does Adam Grant do it? <laughs> and <laughs> that's the question on my mind. Uh, and I thought where we could possibly start is with rewinding the clock and going back to your very first experiences teaching. And I have a, a, a cheat sheet note here that says, you were so uncomfortable in the beginning that your first evaluation forms read, at least for one person, quote, you're so nervous, you're causing us to physically shake in our seats, end quote. So how do you improve at that point? What did you do to improve after getting those feedback forms? Oh, thanks for reminding me. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> it, was, it was it was painful. I you know I remember going to grad school and thinking I've sort of found my calling. You know I had I had these professors who changed the way I saw the world and they were incredibly inspiring and I wanted to try to pay that forward. And then I go in front of my first audience and I get comments like that. And it wasn't just one student, right? It was over and over and over again. Uh, instructor seems very nervous. Uh, instructor seems like the most nervous professor I've ever heard in my life. Uh, instructor is sweating so much that I've completely stopped paying attention to the lecture. Uh, and it just, it just went on and on. And I, I, I think I did what anyone would do in that situation, which is I, I started to wonder whether I should quit. And then I started to realize that the reason I got into this in the first place was not about me. It wasn't, it wasn't about my emotions or my anxiety or the fact that I was described as looking like a Muppet the way I awkwardly moved around the stage. It was, it was because I loved ideas and I wanted to share them. And I, I wanted to be helpful to the students that I, I would one day teach. And so I, I guess I, I, took, I took a little cue out of, out of my diving days. And I said, okay, when I started diving, I was really awful. What did I do? I did as many reps as possible every day. Uh, it you know it, it sounds really boring, but last time I checked, you kind of plant the seeds of greatness in the daily grind. And I know you you've lived your whole life that way, Tim. But for me, that meant I'm I'm going to go and get in front of as many audiences as I can. And so I actually started volunteering to give guest lectures for other people's classes, and force myself into a situation where I would have to be on a stage every day. I would have to give multiple talks on the same topic. I would then have to write new talks. And, you know, I think physiologically, you can only sustain anxiety for so many hours at a time, right? And eventually, it, it started to fade a little bit. I started to get a little more comfortable. Uh, and then, you know, a couple of a couple of good things happened. I remember I, I cracked a joke offhand after I'd, you know, done a lecture a couple times. And a few people laughed. And I thought, wait a minute, the, the audience actually liked something I did. Maybe there's hope. And so I think momentum, I guess, grew from there. And I, I felt like I had a, a couple of small wins to build on. And as I got more comfortable, I think it started to go better. And then uh, and then eventually I decided I actually really enjoyed teaching and maybe I would become halfway decent at it. <laughs> and what were you teaching at the time? What were the talks that you were giving, the lectures? So I was, let's see, the first lecture that I was doing was, it was actually for a, an intro psychology class on career choice. And I was I was the worst person in the world to give this talk because... I had no idea what I wanted to do with my career. And one of the reasons I became a, a, an organizational psychologist was I, I, I'd figured out that I could take all the jobs that I thought were interesting 
and I could study those and live them, live them vicariously. And so <laughs> it was kind of cheating, right? I still don't know what I want to do with my life. So I study other people's interesting jobs. Uh, but I was, I was trying to, I, I guess in the, in the early lectures, I was trying to get students to think about tunnel vision. Uh, it's, it's a problem I've seen over and over again with high achievers. Uh, you know, I, I certainly felt it as an undergrad. I, I've watched a lot of my students at Wharton go through it since then. And I, what I was trying to highlight was that you know, j- just because you're highly motivated and driven and you have, you have clarity about your goals today doesn't mean that you won't wake up in two years and wish you had considered other goals. And so you might want to broaden your peripheral vision a little bit was sort of the, the punchline of the talk. So let, let's, let's dig into broader, uh, broadening peripheral vision or uncovering blind spots. Uh, the feedback form. I'd love to talk about the feedback form. Were the feedback forms standardized so you didn't have input into the feedback forms or were you able to design questions that you then gave to these uh, sort of early students slash victims of your (laughs) many, many uh, rehearsals and (laughs) trial runs? Um, And in either case, I'd be curious to know what you did, what you paid attention to in the feedback forms. So... I actually, when I when I went to give that first guest lecture, uh, I asked the professor, you know, if if they could give out their standard feedback forms so I could learn how to improve. And the professor said, "We guest lectures don't do feedback forms. You're you're donating your time. Uh, you know, you're 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 probably pretty comfortable and confident in having something of value to offer. And you know, you don't you don't then want a bunch of students telling you why you weren't you weren't as good as they wanted you to be." Uh, and you know, if that's not the case, you don't need any more praise anyway. And so, you know, nobody really bothers with it. And I said, well, I I really feel it. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know if this is going to be a train wreck or just really bad. And so I feel like I I have to, I have to learn something from the audience. And so I, um, I just drafted a very simple feedback form. It had two questions on it. Uh, one was how can I improve? And the other was, uh, is there anything I did well that, you know, I should try to repeat or, or build on? And I remember, I actually remember getting the feedback forms and looking at them and thinking, wow, there are a lot of letters written on the improve question. (laughs) There's a lot of white space on the things I did well question. Uh, But what what I I think what I took away from that was I'd always thought you needed to be really structured in, in the feedback requests that you make. And I think that Sometimes that's helpful, right? To say, okay, you know, could you tell me how to make my talk more interesting, or you know, how could I have kept you awake? But that then I would have been limiting the feedback to the things I already knew I needed to work on, right? And I wanted to, I knew I had blind spots. I wanted to to figure out what those were. And so, I think by by asking the broad question, I got much more varied feedback. And then as I designed future feedback forms, I would always ask those broad questions, and then I'd follow up with a few targeted questions on specific things I was trying to work on. What were some of the things? Do you recall some of the things that were specifics you wanted to work on at at, at any point in your development as a teacher? Oh, there's a long list. So, you know, I actually, I wonder, Tim, if you've had this experience too. I I find teaching way easier than speaking or lecturing because uh, yep. te- teaching teaching is interactive, right? You're having mm-hmm. a conversation. Uh, you get a lot of questions, you know, throughout <laughs> throughout your presentation. And you can very quickly start to figure out what the audience is interested in and, and tailor it, right? Yeah. Uh, whereas, you know, I, I think the guest lecturing was uh, was a little bit of trial by fire because I had to stand up and perform. 
and I wasn't I wasn't a skilled or comfortable performer. And so, I uh, early on it was it was very simple things like pausing between sentences, <laughs> like occasionally breathing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got I got feedback at one point that I didn't blink ever. <laughs> just like a barracuda yeah, yeah just laser focus my, my wife tells me i still sometimes don't blink in interviews uh which which cracks me up but i um you know so, some of it was really granular kind of nuts and bolts stage presence and and some of it was content i was uh i was trying to i was trying to get students and you know and later other kinds of audiences to to question their assumptions and i think one of the things i learned very quickly was i was attacking their assumptions way too hard and the moment I said, you might hate your investment banking career. You might not fall in love with management consulting. They got defensive and shut down. And so I was working on finding other ways of, of landing at the conclusion on their terms instead of mine and mm-hmm. saying, okay, how much do you really know about investment banking? Um, is it possible that if you're not someone who reads about markets for fun in your spare time, that it's not going to be the most joyful thing you've ever done to spend 100 hours a week looking at a spreadsheet. Uh, so, you know, a lot, a lot of what I was working on was, was just trying to figure out uh, how to take a message that was provocative to the audience and make it palatable. Yeah, you're, you're very right. Uh, I just want to agree with what you said at the beginning of that, which is teaching, uh, providing much more uh, intermittent valuable feedback in the sense that when you're teaching, depending on the format, of course, but very often confusion becomes clearer earlier to the teacher. Does that make sense? If you give up and, give, and, pro- and provide a keynote and then walk off stage, the feedback loop, if it exists at all, is really slow and kind of on a macro level. But if students, if students can interrupt you, they can raise their hand and say, I don't understand. <laughs> You think, just put that in another <laughs> way. Huge. It's so valuable. And also, I think you're, you're often in the position where when you finally finish your keynote and you get to the audience questions, when you hear the first two questions, you realize, oh, if I'd known that's what you were interested in, I would have given a completely different talk. Yeah, definitely. And I'm going to hop from this to perhaps something that people listening can model, since uh, some people will be in front of students, but some may not. So. I'd love to discuss what I've heard phrased as the challenge network. And this is from a, uh, uh, well, it's phillymag.com, but it's from a a profile from 2018. And it it reads, feel free to fact check, because I don't believe everything I read on the internet. But it says, (laughs) he, referring to you, literally has a challenge network, in quotation marks, a cohort of people he relies on to give him unvarnished feedback. and then the, the next part, which we'll get to also, he keeps a resume of his failures. It's three pages. And he constantly <laughs> asks for advice on what he could tweak, tune up, or totally reconsider. What is a challenge network and how did you assemble it? And, and where I'm re- what I'm reaching for here is how, what did you do and what might you recommend that other people also try or, or at least consider? So I guess I've been, I've been doing it for a long time. I didn't have a name for it or really a structure, a formal structure for it until uh, actually I did my first podcast episode uh, where I went to Bridgewater and uh, was really interested in, in Ray Dalio's you know, culture of radical transparency. And uh, I'd studied it for a few years, but this is the first time I'd, I'd really tried to tell a story in audio as opposed to writing about it. And 
I went in and I was I was thinking, okay, what is what is different in you know in the time that I've spent at this place where you know where people not only are comfortable with criticism, but they actually seem to enjoy getting it. Uh, what what is different about that? And it, I think at one point it just clicked that they are trying to build a different kind of network. That we we all know the value of a network, but mostly when we think about networks, we're thinking about a support network, which is the group of cheerleaders that you surround yourself with to motivate you, to encourage you, uh, to you know to to see more potential in you than you see in yourself. And I, I think that's incredibly important. I think that. It's hard to imagine anyone achieving anything, right, without having some kind of support network behind them. Uh, you know, whether that's building their confidence or opening doors for them uh, or helping them build their skills. But Bridgewater really is about creating a different kind of network. And I feel like what they have built is a whole company uh, that's organized around a challenge network where your job is to say, look, I want you to be as good as you can be, Tim. And so that means I'm going to try to tear your logic apart to see if there are any holes in it and try to improve your reasoning and your thinking so that you make better decisions and you come up with, with more compelling solutions to problems. And in a way, it's, it's a form of tough love, right? I think having somebody who's, who's pure challenge and never gives you any support, uh, that just sounds abusive. <laughs> but, right. but I think, you know, I think a, a great member of a challenge network, and I'll, I'll tell you about mine, is somebody who, you know, who pushes you because they believe in you. And they're not willing to, to settle for, you know, for half-baked ideas or for something that's not your very best work. If I could just jump in for one second also, for people who don't know Bridgewater Associates, just as context, it is uh, perhaps still the largest, certainly one of the largest asset managers, some might call it a hedge fund, with something like $160 billion under management. So when you're deploying that type of capital, and let's just say you're a portfolio manager or someone making decisions or at least proposing positions or trades, there are very, very real stakes involved. And uh, part of the reason that I'm so excited to hear about how you have implemented this or how it's manifested for you is that you know, when you're dealing with tens or hundreds of billions of dollars, the, the consequences uh, are, are perhaps very obvious, right? And the incentives are very obvious. Uh, but in, uh, few people think of putting together a challenge network uh, for themselves. So I, I, I've, I'd love to hear what, what that ended up looking like for you. Sure. So I think where it actually started when I transitioned from, from doing those guest lectures to teaching my first class. So I'm a grad student and you know, I'm responsible for teaching a whole semester long course. I, I remember being so freaked out for the first class that my wife actually came and sat in and pretended to be a, a TA just, just so afterwards she could tell me that, you know, that, that people were still going to come to the next class. And I, um, but I, I got through it. And you know, we, we met twice a week. It was a class on organizational change. And the students seemed to be genuinely engaged and enjoying it. And you know, it, it, it was such a pleasant surprise coming from the lecturing to, to teaching in that way because I felt like I was building relationships with them. I was getting to know them. I was, you know, being, I was adjusting the class in real time as I learned what they, they, wanted, to, to what they wanted to learn. And so I, um, I moved along in the class and I realized that it was really easy to focus on the things that were going well because my expectations had been so low. And I needed to figure out what was going wrong because as a brand new teacher, uh, I was still very nervous. I still did plenty of lecturing in the class. 
And I was going to have to teach much less receptive audiences than a group of undergrads who signed up for an elective. And so I did, uh, I, I did feedback forums a couple weeks in, uh, and then I did something, I guess, that was sort of radical. Uh, I went to one of my advisors, and I said, I've gotten all the feedback from the forums, and there is a lot of real criticism in there about things that I'm doing very poorly. Uh, I was horrible at time management, as, as an example, and uh, a bunch of people said that you know, it would be really nice if I ever made it through even 10% of the material I promised at the beginning of the class. <laughs> And so, but I, you know, as soon as a student answered a question, I felt like I had to answer it. And so, you know, I just get sidetracked from, well, I don't, I don't care what my lesson plan was, right? I'm here to serve the students. Anyway, so I, I went to my advisor and I said, I have all this feedback and I'm just going to open source it. I'm going to share it with the whole class. And she said, what are you insane? They're going to, they're going to band into a mob of angry millennials. And once, once they find out that they're all upset about the same pieces of the class, you know, it's going to be a mutiny. Don't do it. And I felt like, I felt like it was a, it was sort of a crossroads because it, it left me wondering, who do I want to be? Do I want to, do I want to be the, the person who's so determined to prove myself that I'm afraid of, of students finding out what they probably already know about me? Or am I more interested in improving myself? And I, I picked the improving route, and so I typed up all the feedback verbatim, I emailed it out to the entire class, and then I devoted a whole class session to discussing all the suggestions for improvement. And I guess what I had done was I turned the students a little bit into my, my coaches, but it was very much a challenge network because their job was to tell me everything that was not working about the class and then brainstorm with me about what we could do to fix it. And so we spent the, it was funny because we spent then half a semester of a class on organizational change, uh, kind of living an experiment on how to do organizational change in the context of a class. And after that experience, I said, okay, I always want a group of students who are a challenge network for me, which has meant in some cases, when I write a book, uh, the first group that sees the draft of each chapter is a group of students and their job is to violently disagree with every word that I write. I try to, you know, really try to poke holes in in, in the evidence and in it. the logic. So they're reading it like a debate team who has been assigned the counter argument, even if they don't, or simply the the task of disassembling your argument, even if that's not how they feel. That's the responsibility that you give them. Exactly, and so they end up almost competing to see who can can give the most devastating criticism. I I remember walking into a lab meeting once, and a, a student said. At no point, at any time during reading this chapter, did I feel like I could say the words page turner. <laughs> okay. Uh, but so that, that's, it's played out in, in a lot of different ways, right? So when I was, uh, when I was preparing to, to do my first TED Talk, uh, I had a group of people who watched it and their job was to, to argue with me about all my points. Um, and then, you know, I've done the same thing with op-eds. And so after I went to, to Bridgewater... And sort of the, the term clicked. And I thought, oh, Challenge Network. That's what I've been trying to build for myself. I actually reached out to some of the people that I've relied on the most in the past decade for that role. And I've said, hey, I just wanted you to know that I consider you a founding member of my Challenge Network. Uh, I, you know, I, I know I'm not always as receptive to your criticism as I would like to be. And sometimes that's probably frustrating for you. But I keep coming to you because I know I need it and I value it, even if I don't like it. And I want you to keep providing that because that's one of the central roles that you play in my life and you've made my work infinitely better. And, you know, sometimes that's, I feel <laughs> occasionally that's emboldened them <laughs> in ways that 
like, well, you know, I'm not sure that I really needed my outfit to be criticized in that particular talk I gave. That's not the feedback I was looking for, but uh, I think it's, it's been just immensely beneficial. So Tim, I'm curious, do you, do you have a challenge network? I have, I have, uh, certainly people I rely on to call my babies or decisions or whatever uh, the facet of my life might be under scrutiny, uh, ugly when necessary. Uh, I, I definitely do. Uh, that's it's it's clearest when I am uh, considering a what would be for me a large decision where I'll call people just to reality check my thinking. I want them to really spot uh, any weaknesses or glaring omissions or blind spots that they see with a bit more distance and, uh, also in writing. So I, 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 I can't have cheerleaders as editors, uh, (laughs) at least proofreaders. So I will send chapters typically to very specific people and I will force their hand a bit because they're they're all intrinsically quite nice people but I'll ask them this is where I think the you know the wording of the questions is so important but for me I'll ask them if you had to remove say 20% of this chapter which 20% would you remove gun to the head you have to cut 20% oh I love what, that what would you cut and then I also ask them if you could only save 10% or 20% depends on the length of the chapter what what do you think I should absolutely keep in? And the the rule that I have, it's I suppose a more of a heuristic. It's not a hard and fast rule, but something that I think about is to absolutely remove something requires a consensus of at least two people. So if two people say you should absolutely remove this, I take it very very seriously. To keep something only requires a vote of one. So if five people respond with five different answers for this is the 10% I would absolutely 100% keep in, then I do my best to keep all of that. Uh, uh, So that would be be an example. I don't have a formal challenge network, but this is making me consider doing that. And is the challenge network your challenge network, the the Bridgewater-style challenge network, something that you involve ad hoc as you are working on projects and so on? Or is it, is it something that has a cadence where you're scheduling like once per month, I'm going to ask X, Y, and Z of these following four people or once per quarter, I'm going to do A, B, and C, anything like that? Is there, is there a structure or a scheduling to it? Interesting. I think there's a structure for big projects. So when, when I'm writing a book or working on a podcast season, you know, I'll have a, a meeting of my, my challenge network of, of students that's usually once every two weeks. And, you know, there's a pretty regular cadence to the sort of the, the process of producing episodes. And I know that, you know, there's going to be new material for them to, <laughs> to trash every, every time we come together. Um, I, would, I love your idea of saying, if you were going to cut something, what would you cut? Because I found early on, I felt like, you know, they, they really let anything that they had in their heads fly and they weren't too worried about it. And I guess as I've accomplished more, they've been either more worried that I have a big ego, uh, which is ironic because I think the more you, you accomplish, the easier it is to, you know, to face a failure and say, hey, that doesn't matter. I've, I've you know, succeeded in other ways. Or, you know, they're, they're just worried about hurting their relationship with me. Uh, and... So I've one of the things I've found with the regular structure is uh, it's helpful for me to have a senior student in there who's worked for me for a long time uh, or with me for a long time, and I'll actually tee it up, tee it up in advance and say, uh, I want you to come in guns blazing 
with the toughest criticism you could ever give, even if you don't fully believe it, because I want you to model the kind of, of challenge that I want, and I'm going to be prepared, prepared for it, and I'm going to respond as, as, with as much openness and, you know, and curiosity as I can muster. And that way, we're going to try to set the tone and the norm for, you know, for the next few months. That's um, really smart. That's really helps, smart. It helps, I think. But oh, yeah. It works in, in all sorts of settings. Group therapy, if you want people to open up. I mean, there, there are a lot of contexts in which that is really smart. That's great. I like that. And then for the, for the unstructured, I, I do this spontaneously a lot. So every time I get off a stage, uh, you know, you, usually somebody will say, oh, you know, that was, that was great. Or, you know, thanks. That's, that's not useful to me, right? So I'll, I'll always say, what's the one thing I can do better? Mm-hmm. And I've kind yeah. of drafted them against their will into my challenge network. <laughs> right. and, and sometimes they say, well, you know, nothing. And I, I feel like I, I have to push them a little bit. And so I've, I've started, uh, I guess I've, I've gotten a little edgier about this over the past few years. And, and I'll say, huh, you know, it's funny. I thought you had higher standards than that. You couldn't <laughs> find a single thing I could improve on. You really think this was perfect? Come on. And then if they, if they won't give me anything, I will criticize myself out loud. And I'll say, look, here are the three things that I think I did poorly. Tell me if you agree with any of those and then what I'm missing. And then I've never had somebody just completely punt at that point. They always <laughs> offer something. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Yeah, you, you've, you're just giving them permission uh, with more and more <laughs> weight <laughs> pushed behind it. Uh, why do you keep a resume of your failures? Is that an accurate description of whatever they were trying to describe in this piece? What is a resume of your failures and what's the point of it? Yeah, it's, it's actually an, an idea I got from a scientist, Melanie Steffen, who said, look, you know, we, we do such a disservice to, to young people in any field, because when they look up at their role models, they only see them at their peak. And you know, when you look at somebody's resume or bio, it only has their, their accomplishments. Uh, and not all of the schools that rejected them, not all of the jobs that denied them, not all of the creative projects that failed. And so it can be really discouraging if you're moving into a field uh, to to look up at people who seem perfect. And so I, I just thought it was a it was a clever way to to be comfortable sharing all the all the things that I'd stumbled in. Uh, and then also it was I, I found it I thought it was a good exercise for me. To say, you know, look, it's it's easy to get caught up in believing that as you accumulate more success, your odds of success go up over time, uh, because you gain experience, you surround yourself with better people, uh, you you know maybe avoid repeating past mistakes, and the reality is, I think that you also take on more ambitious projects, and so in in some ways the odds go down, and it was it's just it's been a reminder to me that. Uh, I've rarely ever done anything that didn't fail radically before I achieved some success. And it, 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 it's, it's a good, I guess it's a good way to, to do a little bit of mental time travel and say, Hey, you know what? Uh, I remember, <laughs> I, I remember throwing away 102,000 words of my, my first draft of my book, uh, which was 103,000 words. And at that moment I felt like I was never going to write a book and I couldn't make it as an author. And, you know, I kind of edited that out of my story in the way that I think about it. Uh, you know, the process of writing a book, uh, because I moved past that. But if I remember that, it's a lot easier to cope with, with today's failure or tomorrow's failure. How did you decide to do that? 102,000 words is a lot of words. Uh, for, for, people, for people wondering, uh, I, I suppose if we're talking about like an average trim size, meaning average book size, physical paperback book, uh, I'm, I'm probably going to screw this up a little bit, but 150,000 words would be the length of many books. Right, that would be 
let's call it, I have no idea, 200, 200 to 250 page book or something like that. Uh, maybe, maybe less. It depends a lot on the words per page, but how did you decide to like to walk me through the day where you were like, this is it. I'm scrapping 102,000 words. Okay. I think it was August, 2011. And the 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 lead up to it i think is 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 important which is uh i had i decided in the spring right after i got tenure that uh i wanted to start sharing ideas you know outside of just academia and uh one of my favorite collaborators barry schwartz who you probably know from the paradox yeah, of choice paradox of choice uh barry had had coincidentally reached out and said hey i'm thinking about writing a book on motivation and incentives i know you do a lot of work in that area uh do you want to write the book together and i was so flattered uh, and it just seemed like a great way to begin communicating ideas. And I loved working with him. Uh, so I, I had a meeting with my students that day and talk about Challenge Network. They held me hostage and they told me they would not let me leave the lab meeting until I promised them that I wouldn't write somebody else's book before I wrote my own. And I didn't want to let them down. So I said, OK, I'll, 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 I'll write my book and then maybe one day Barry and I will do something together again. And so I went through the whole process to, to find a literary agent uh, and uh, had Richard Pine uh, come in as my agent. And he said, write a proposal. After we talked about a bunch of ideas, I, uh, I started working on the proposal in June and I got so into it that I accidentally wrote the book. <laughs> For people listening, that doesn't generally happen. <laughs> well, hold on. Hold okay, on all right, continue. <laughs> no, no, it, it happens. Here's how it happens, right? So this is 2011. <laughs> I'm writing a book about a topic I've been studying for a decade. Uh, I've been living it and breathing it, and I have so many thoughts and ideas about it, and I never really sat down to organize them. And so, you know, I start to write about a study, and that, then that calls to mind three other studies that I love. And then that reminds me of a story that I think will illustrate the study in an interesting way. And so it just, it just became, I mean, it's, it's literally all I did for that summer. I was right to draft the book. Mm -hmm. And so I sent it to Richard in, in August. Uh, he had actually checked in and said, hey, where's that proposal? And I said, oh, um, it's a little long because I think I have a draft of the book. <laughs> and Richard, being a great member of my challenge network, said, uh, I've got to be honest with you. Uh, I don't even know if your academic colleagues would finish reading this book. <laughs> that was after he sent, uh, after you sent him rather the draft. Correct. Yeah, he read. The, I, I don't. I don't actually think he made it through the draft. It was so bad. But it, you know, it was basically like reading a, a hundred research papers strung together. And academic research papers are not. They're not interesting, uh, for the most part. So he he gave me some great advice, though. He said, he said, just do me a favor. Don't write like you write journal articles. Write like you teach. And that was a light bulb moment for me. And so it it kind of turned around from. <laughs> this, this is agonizing. I think I will never be an author to, okay, if I were going to, if I were going to tell the story of these ideas in the classroom, what would I do? And then I actually, um, I started, I started doing the talk out loud so that I wouldn't go back into the trap of academic writing. And I found that it was way easier to write about other people's ideas than my own. Uh, and so I, I decided I was going to leave my ideas out of the first couple of chapter drafts and just write about other people's stuff as if I were introducing it to my students with the same excitement that I would in a classroom. And um, that I found a lot of um, it, that felt really familiar and comfortable. And then uh, from there, the, <laughs> the second draft was better. I resuscitated about a thousand words from the first draft 
and uh, we'll never show the other 102,000 to anyone. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I thought I thought it was hard throwing away four chapters <laughs> two or three times of my first book. Yeah, 102,000 words is a lot, or 101,000, excuse me. Uh, you said earlier about your getting diverted during class and not following lesson plans as reflective of you being horrible at time management. Now, based on the bio and the... It seems awe with which many of your colleagues, uh, certainly people sort of within your world, but also outside of your world, uh, experience with looking at all of these accomplishments. Uh, How what would how would your good friends, the people who really know you, explain your ability to get things done? Oh, well, first, we, we have the pot calling the kettle black here, Tim. <laughs> uh, I, I, I was really amused when you texted me uh, and said you were going to hustle uh, so that we could start early, because I, I literally don't think you are capable of not hustling. <laughs> well, we need, to, we need to get into the nuances of hustle, but I, I have two speeds. I have park and six gear. There's really very, there's very, there's very little in between. Uh, that is true. But you're even, uh, you're even intense about your park. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there is, there's a certain baseline intensity. I will not deny. I will not deny. But, <laughs> but, but you, you and I have also uh, played in, in some similar sandboxes, but also a lot of very different sandboxes. I think I've cheated in the sense that. I have have kind of rigged games and and loaded decks of cards so that I can sort of freestyle my way through whatever this is that I have ended up calling a career. But you, within the seemingly very well-established constraints of the academic world and research world, have done things that seem to defy belief. Uh, that's a lot harder, I think. <laughs> I, I uh, beg to differ because there, oh, yeah. <laughs> there, there are there are rules and norms, right? You, I, what I had to do was exist. I had to go into somebody else's system and figure out how to succeed within it. You had to create your own system. I think that's way harder. But we can we can duke that out later. <laughs> we, yeah, we can. Duke I will that try, out I will later. try to answer your question. How would your if if it allows you to. Uh, speak more directly to it because uh, I, you know, it's, it's not always easy to kind of pat yourself on the back and that's, that's not what I'm aiming for here, but you are an outlier. Like, I think objectively speaking, you are an outlier. So how would people who really know you explain the factors, the behaviors that have contributed to that? So I've, I've asked a bunch of people that question because I got tired of saying, I don't know, I just work a lot, I guess, uh, when it, when it came up and, I think there are there are a few things that I've learned that I didn't know were maybe useful habits uh, that I, I guess I, I either do instinctively or at some point decided were effective. So, the my college roommates used to tell me that I um, that I I had a, a productive form of, of mild OCD, and the, I, I guess they, they saw it when I was uh, I was writing my my undergrad thesis. And I, f- I think I finished it four months before it was due because uh, I, I just I just woke up in the morning and I would write until I had said everything I had to say. And you know, I'd rarely get up out of my chair and, you know, sometimes I would go to eat lunch. But uh, I think I 
I really, I hate leaving something unfinished. And so this is, this is actually both a blessing and a curse. So the blessing is, it means that, you know, when I sit down to start something, I will finish it. <laughs> what that means is whatever else was on my agenda after that is just going haywire. Uh, so I'm constantly late because I have a chronic inability to, to disengage from the current thing on my agenda uh, to, you know, to go and move on to the next thing, right? And time is sort of an arbitrary human construction. I'm like, well, I didn't know yesterday when I scheduled this meeting that I was going to be in flow today at this time. And so, <laughs> you know, I, I hope this person values our collaboration enough uh, or, you know, is, is glad to be able to, you know, to yell at me about always being late uh, enough that they're willing to put up with it. But I think that it, for me, that's, I think I'm bad at time management, but I'm, I've gotten good at attention management. Mm -hmm. And I just, I, when I sit down, um, I know as a psychologist, we have decades of evidence that people are horrible parallel processors, mm -hmm. right? We're serial processors. It's really not just in the multitasking sense, but in the course of a morning, uh, you're not going to be that productive if you're trying to work on five different things. And so what I try to do is I try to do one project or task at a time until you know, I've either gotten as far as I can go with it and I've run out of ideas or I've physically run out of time that I, I can't work on it anymore. And I find, I find that that's useful. And what that means sometimes is I'm in a meeting, one of my colleagues who I asked, okay, you know, is, there, is there anything I do that, that's productive that I don't realize is productive? And she said, yeah, we're in a meeting. We've got seven minutes left and we've just finished a task. And I'll, I'll just start chit-chatting. And she said, what you do, uh, I guess what I, what I learned with that I do is I'll say, well, we've got another task that we could at least start in those seven minutes. And so we end up using those extra minutes, but also then the meeting stretches 20 minutes over because then we got into a rhythm and, and we got a little bit more done. And I think that, that people are way too rigid about respecting time boundaries uh, as opposed to saying, look, you know, you, <laughs> if, if, you're all, if you're all about time management, then you're just gonna, you're gonna just notice how much time you waste. And then you're gonna waste more time beating yourself up about how much time you waste. <laughs> <laughs> so you're like a meta time waster. And I, I really believe right. in the idea of attention management instead, which is to say that, you know, if I am if I'm choosing people and projects that matter to me, it does not matter how long they take. And so I have a project I want to work on today, and you know, whenever it's done, it'll be done. Uh, but I'm excited to be working on it, and I'm not going to pick up anything else until I, I feel like I've made meaningful progress on it. And I don't know if that's useful or not. You tell me. Did I say anything novel there? <laughs> well, I, I, yes, you did. I, I think there are a few things to look at here, uh, and I, I don't want to take us down a dead end. Uh, but, but what I'm what I'm trying to splice out are the trainable habits from perhaps hardwiring or attributes that are not as easy to model right yeah. so the so the the OCD right this OCD uh, I, I saw uh, we don't have to get into it but the dark side of Nintendo if uh, that rings any <laughs> bell this is uh, I'll just I'll just give the short version so there's a there's a uh, in the Detroit Free Press there is a an article that was headlined the dark side of Nintendo with a photograph of you age seven, uh, clutching a Nintendo console and staring at a television. <laughs> uh, but you've had this, uh, this extreme ability to focus for some time. 
it would seem. Uh, the, the, the attention management versus time management, I think, is really important and something I'd like to e- explore a bit. Uh, because but you're right in the sense that time management can end up becoming a subconscious obsession with measuring units as opposed to the substance of the project or the output uh, goal of, of some type of task, right? And w- what I'd love to hear about uh, is uh, I, I, I really think renegotiation is a critical skill in all human affairs, but you, you alluded to this earlier in the sense that it, there are times, many times, when it's hard to predict when you'll be in flow. And the information that you then have that day is different from the information you had the day before when you made commitments A, B, and C, right? So how do you say no to people when you've already said yes? How do you renegotiate or cancel these commitments when you realize that you want to do something else, you're out of bandwidth, or whatever the reason might be. How, how do you approach that? Well, my, my first goal is always to minimize the number of times that, that happens. Mm-hmm. And so I, I read some research early on about uh, the difference between chunking and sprinkling, as I've come to think about it. Uh, so the, the research was on doing random acts of kindness. Uh, this is Sonia Lubomirsky and her colleagues. And the idea was, let's, let's imagine, Tim, that you're going to do five five-minute favors this week. Uh, you, if, you're a, if you're randomly assigned a sprinkle, you're going to do one each day throughout the week. If you're going to chunk, you're going to pick Thursday as your helping day, and you're going to do all five of them stacked in that one day in a block. And the question is, who gets happier and more energized? And when I pose this to audiences, about 80% of people on average say it's the sprinkling. Because you, know, you, you get a little bit of extra bounce in your step. You feel like you did something good every day. It's not a big distraction. And they're totally wrong. Over, uh, over about three months, only one group gets happier and more energized, and it's actually the chunkers, not the sprinklers. Uh, and we think, we think what's going on there, this is still pretty early, but it's been replicated a few times now, uh, both in the workplace and, uh, and in volunteering, is when, when you do one little act of giving a day, you end up sort of feeling like it's a drop in the bucket. And it also you know, is yet another thing on your to-do list. Whereas when you pick one day each week as your giving day, you feel like you made a difference that day. Um, and also you're really focused on, okay, what can I do to help these people uh, in those moments? And so, and then, you know, the rest of the week you can, you can focus a little bit more on, on getting your own work done. And so I, I took that to my schedule and said, all right, uh, I'm going to have days that are focused on getting my own creative work done. And then I'm going to have days that are focused on being responsive and available for other people. And so, Early on, that meant I would have days where I was on campus, and I would have I would teach a class, and then I would have four hours of office hours back to back, and then I do whatever else I needed to do on, campus, and then I go home, and then the next day I wouldn't go into work, and I work from home all day, and I would not talk to another human being who wasn't a member of my family, uh, and that's kind of how I've tried to organize my life, and what it means is, Paul Graham wrote a great little blog post about this. He he called them maker days and manager days. Uh, it means I, I don't feel like I'm that productive, you know, when I'm on campus or I'm in a back-to-back meeting day. Uh, but it also means then that on the day when I'm doing creative work, there's nothing that's going to interrupt my flow because I'm not scheduling anything uh, that you know that that might distract. And so I think prevention is always the best cure there. Uh, but you wanted to know about also what happens when that fails. Correct. So when that fails, uh, I had this happen actually recently. 
uh, I had agreed to uh, to travel and give a speech, and I ended up uh, having a conflict with a, a project that I had committed to earlier, but didn't know the dates for. And I felt awful. Uh, I it's it's a core principle for me to follow through on my commitments, and I'd never I'd never reneged on a, a speech like that before, and so I reached out to the uh, the the organizer. Uh, I ap- apologized profusely. And I said, you have my word that I'm going to recruit someone far better than me uh, so that you will be thrilled that I canceled <laughs> because you have a much better talk. And then I made it my mission to, to find somebody who would either hit a more relevant topic or who was going to give a more electrifying presentation. Uh, and then uh, just to be safe, I recruited three more speakers for the event because I was really worried that I was still le- letting them down. And um, that, that for me is, is the only renegotiation strategy I ever feel comfortable with, which is to say, look... Um, my calendar has gotten the better of me or I've, I've overextended myself yet again. And so I promise you that the time you have lost today, I will make up for it in spades for you tomorrow. Oh, I like that. Now, would you How do you use- do it? Uh, I'll answer that. I'll answer that. Let me, I'm, I'm also learning. So I'm fishing for, <laughs> for, <laughs> for tactics here. Uh, but th- would you use that also? How would that wording change if it say is a meeting with a colleague? So something where there is no uh, replacing of yourself for a future engagement. Uh, uh, does that how, how would the wording potentially change? Understanding that you try not to do it. <laughs> yeah. But let's just say you're writing a book, you're on deadline, and that chapter you've been stuck on, all of a sudden you're in complete flow, and for whatever reason, it's it's not it's it's on a day where there's 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 a commitment that has been made. I hate being irreplaceable in that sense, but I, I guess I would, so I've, I've had that happen. I, I guess that's a, happens at least a few times a year. And what I've usually done is, uh, I've either emailed or called the person and said, I've tried to email actually, because it's less likely to disrupt my flow. And I've said, look, I'm really sorry. I've had something come up. Uh, I know you're counting on me to be here. I'm not going to be able to make it. Uh, what you can count on me for is always delivering results. And so you may not always get the FaceTime that I promised. You may not always get me to show up exactly at the moment I said I was going to be there. I will never miss a deadline. I will never fail to deliver something I promised to you when you need it. And so you let me know what your hard stop is, and I will stay up as late as I need to tonight to finish what I need to do. If you want to hop on the phone early in the morning, I will be on the phone with you. Uh, and so I guess I'm trying to find a way to to let the person know that I am dependable for the outcome, even though I was not dependable necessarily for the interaction. That's great. Yeah, that uh, makes a whole lot of sense. And you? Uh, and me. It, it's, it's very context-specific, I think, uh, as these examples bring up. I, there are some meta principles, right? I think the, the meta principle is make up for it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. So, like, you are causing some pains. What can you do to remove that pain or uh, make them feel, on some level, that you are going above and beyond to make up for what was lost? Uh, I, I think for me, a lot of it is being very honest and just saying like when i made the commitment i wholeheartedly felt like i would be able to do a b and c it has become clear based on new information or a b c and d that 
if I make an attempt to do this, let's just say this is kind of broadly speaking that I think at best I am going to do a a mediocre job because of the limited bandwidth I'm going to have. And that would be a disservice to project X or everything that both of us were hoping for, for this. Let me find a replacement. I would like to find a replacement, uh, something along those lines. I like Uh, that. Yeah. And it's, what I try not to do is, sorry, I can't do this right now. Ask me again in three months, unless I genuinely believe that it is something <laughs> I want to do. Because the yeah. punt, the punting is a huge uh, fuck you to the person you're interacting with. It's it's it, it's much better to give a hard no than a maybe that in your heart of hearts is actually a no. So that that I really try to avoid uh, by all means necessary. I, and, I I wish I learned that a few years earlier. I learned <laughs> that one the hard way. Yeah, yeah, it creeps up on you. That is just like the creeping death, and uh, it's bad for everybody. And I, what I also have tried to remind myself of, I think a lot of the renegotiating that I do, and I've done a lot more of it in the last few years, is uh, uh, not because I capriciously make more commitments, but because things do change. If I commit to do something, and let's just say it's six months out, and there's still plenty of room to maneuver and life circumstances change. I used to come hell or high water, say my word is my bond. You're only as good as your word. I'm going to follow through on everything I initially commit to. But I've, I've come to rethink that. And it doesn't mean people can't depend on me. People can depend on me to be very truthful about changes in circumstances. Uh, and I, what I've noticed for myself, because I have people do this to me as well, who are very, very busy, and they just, for whatever reason, like they can't go on a trip with me, or they can't help with whatever the project might be, is that I don't get particularly, I don't get upset. I don't get upset unless they leave me hanging last minute, because I know they didn't just figure it out last minute. They knew probably weeks before, right? So as long as they give me a heads up, I don't get upset. And so the uh, the Ted Geisel, aka Dr. Seuss quote, you know, those who matter don't mind and those who mind don't matter, is something I really try to remind myself of. Because when you say no, whether it's an initial no or a renegotiated no, assuming you're doing it with plenty of time and you're not really leaving someone hanging is something you can control, but you can't, you have, you have no control over the other side's response. That's that's more of a reminder and self-talk that I use for myself in those circumstances, because I I do think that the, the tactics you're able to deploy are dependent largely on the beliefs you have. And if the belief you have is every relationship is equally important. And if I burn any bridge, I'm screwed you're going to make a lot of compromises that have a huge impact on your ability to steer your own direction. It's, it's true. And it, Tim, this makes me think it's, it's interesting. It seems like you, you had a really sort of literal definition of integrity early on. And over time, you've, uh, you've been more comfortable saying, look, uh, I'm going to be authentic. Uh, and you know, sometimes that means... <laughs> Past Tim did not calibrate well with the present Tim, and so there's you know there's there's a commitment made then that no longer makes sense, and I'm gonna I'm gonna try to make that right however I can. Um, I wonder there's there's all this research on on behavioral integrity which says that you know you're you're basically supposed to practice what you preach, and I've been wondering lately if we've got that backward, 
And if instead what we should be doing is only preaching things that we already practice, hmm. and then we don't have as many of those gaps. <laughs> right. <laughs> so you're not, you're not the, uh, the, the behavioral greyhound chasing around the sort of theoretical bunny. <laughs> that's a great the phrase. Yeah. That's, exa- that's exactly it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, and uh, let's, let's talk a little bit more about no. Uh, and and saying no because um, and and we'll get there in a bit of a, a roundabout way perhaps. Uh, I'd like to dis- discuss you uh, a piece you wrote in the New York Times uh, about email. Uh-oh. Yeah, yeah. Let's <laughs> let's let's talk about it. So uh, and it starts with no. You can't ignore email. It's rude. <laughs> I did or, not or it doesn't the start there. Oh no, no, it doesn't. It doesn't. That that okay. So you didn't write that line. Somebody else did. But the, the maybe you could. I'll let you speak for yourself. Could you share your <laughs> no. share your thesis and when it applies and when it doesn't apply? I feel like bad headlines ruin more good op eds than I can count. But yeah, yeah. Uh, I what, okay. So the <laughs> the reason the reason I wrote this piece <laughs> is I read two articles back to back, one in the Atlantic, one in the New York Times, that basically said, you know what? Forget inbox zero. Just go to inbox infinity. And you don't ever have to respond to anybody's email. And I was stunned by that because I thought, okay, would you, if somebody said hi to you in the hallway, would you just ignore them? <laughs> if somebody, if somebody called you, would you never return their voicemail? That you know that that seems unprofessional. And so, what makes digital snubbery okay? And you know, I, I started thinking about the research on this and. There's, there's a whole bunch of evidence suggesting that of all the personality traits that matter for job performance, whether we look at your objective productivity as a, a salesperson or an engineer, or your performance reviews and promotions that you get from your manager, um, the single most important personality trait across hundreds and hundreds of jobs in dozens of countries around the world is conscientiousness, right? being, being hardworking, organized, disciplined, dependable. And... There's a, there's a component of conscientiousness that's about being responsive, which says two things. One, I'm on top of things. And two, I care. And so I'm not, look, I'm not saying you have to answer every email that every random person sends you, right? And I think this is, this is complicated for a lot of jobs. Uh, but I think that if you are habitually not responding to legitimate emails from people that you have a professional relationship with, it is sending a signal to them that you are either disorganized or that you don't care about their priorities. And people are constantly saying, well, wait a minute, but, but hold on, but you know, my inbox is other people's priorities. And my response to that is, yeah, but shouldn't your priorities include other people? And also don't you want people to respond to your emails? And so, you know, I just, I, I, I felt like it was time for somebody to write the counterpoint. And so I sat down and I said, look, I think that if you are, you know, a, a consistent non-responder to, to serious emails, um, that suggests that there's a problem with your process, and you need a different way of handling it. If you want, if you care about being perceived as, you know, as somebody who's responsible and reliable and concerned about others, which is really important for your success, even if you don't care about your image. Uh, so that was that was the motivation behind it. What are some of your processes for email how do you how do you process email do you have do you have any particular rules times approaches anything at all tools that 
that you that you use consistently? Yeah, I have. Um, I actually, Tim, I read you, you. You gave fantastic advice about this. I remember right after Give and Take came out, uh, I just got a deluge of emails from from readers, and I read a blog post that you wrote about how to be more efficient with email. Uh, and I, one of the first things I saw in there was you were talking about Tony Shea's Yesterbox, which I tried out and found really useful. Um, you know, just just the habit of of going and saying, okay, if I can answer all of yesterday's email today, I will never fall behind. Amazing. Um, I do a lot of batch processing. So, you know, I, I try to, I, I'm not somebody who will just, you know, kind of randomly answer one email. I will sit down and try to go through 30 or 40 or 100 emails. And I think I break one of the cardinal rules uh, that most of the writers I know have with email, which is on my writing days, I actually deliberately start in the morning by answering a few emails. Why and, is that? <laughs> well, it's simple. Uh, I want to get into a rhythm of writing. Huh. And the the flashing cursor, it's just, it's so ominous. I like that. I like <laughs> I was, that a lot. Uh, yeah, I like that. I, I actually found myself uh, curious a couple of months ago when I was trying to write an article and, and you know, kind of mini writer's block, thinking like, huh, I wonder if the cursor was named after all the writers who cursed it. <laughs> 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 and, uh, and it's just, you know, it's really daunting, right? It feels like, okay, I, I have to say something important. I have to have a grand idea. I have to, you know, I have to be coherent. I just woke up. And so email is a low bar. And so I feel like, okay, my fingers start moving. I get into, you know, a little bit of a productive rhythm and I answer a few easy emails and I feel like, hey, I've, co- I've accomplished something today. Maybe, maybe I can organize a coherent thought. And then, you know, that, that spills over and builds my confidence and gives me a little momentum for my writing. Do you use Gmail? Do you have any tools that you use for going through email? I'm embarrassingly Luddite on this, even though everyone I know and trust has told me to switch to superhuman. I am still using Outlook without any mm-hmm. shortcuts. Mm-hmm. Will Got you still it. talk to me after knowing that? I will. I will still. <laughs> I will still consider <laughs> future conversations. I actually, uh, you know, if I can admit something embarrassing, I actually uh, quite like Outlook. Uh, yes for some of its functionality. Um, there are a lot of tools out there that uh, I, I think are, are quite helpful, but I, I do quite like Outlook. And in fact, I do a lot of my batch processing with uh, Gmail offline because the split pane view that I can use is actually reminiscent both in appearance but also functionality to Outlook. Uh, and, and I, and I don't want to receive emails as I am replying to emails. It's, oh, that's it's, the worst. It's too demotivating. Uh, how do you say no in, in email and you could give any, it, there, there may not be one no for all occasions, but what is, if someone gets a no from Adam, uh, what, what might that look like? So, and what, what are they asking for and what do you say no to? Are there anything, anything's categorically that you say no to? Yeah, definitely. Uh, I don't take meetings with strangers, mm-hmm. period. Uh, <laughs> I used to take meetings with anyone who asked. And I guess as I've gotten more visible, there just aren't enough hours in the day for it. And I had to decide. I, I prioritized. I said, my family comes first, my students are second, my colleagues and friends are third, and everybody else is fourth. And you know, that, that meant that, okay, I will happily respond to an email from a stranger if it's reasonable and it's up my alley. Uh, 
And, you know, but I'm, I, I just don't have enough hours in the day to, to meet with people that I don't have a, an existing reason to be collaborating with or trying to help. And so um, that, that's a categorical no. And what, one thing I will never say is I don't have time. That is mm. a lie. Everybody yeah. makes time for something that's important. Yeah. And so what, what I don't have time really means, or I'm too busy, that's even worse, right? Everybody's busy. Uh, the busiest people I know have the, often the clearest calendars. You've written about this before. Uh, <laughs> right. Right? You've, you've written about how Warren Buffett and Bill Gates and uh, George Lucas and others, they have, basically have nothing scheduled all day, um, which is kind of an amazing life. But I think that um, I, I think too busy is, is, is dishonest and cruel. And what you, what you really mean when you say that is this or you are not a priority for me right now. And so I've tried, I, I think that sounds a little harsh. And so the way that I will try to say it is, um, you know, based on the commitments that I have on my plate, this is not something that I can add. Mm-hmm. And I then like what, what I'll try to do is, is suggest either some books or articles to read or um, some people who might be interested in having that discussion. That's, yeah. that's probably the go-to response. Yeah, that's great. Do you have an auto response of any type? Yeah, I have. Uh, so I have an auto reply that comes to my public email address, and I made the decision about. I guess yeah, it was right after Give and Take came out uh, when my email volume increased exponentially. I, I said, okay, I have a choice. I can either maintain a public email address and accept the fact that I will not be as thoughtful and responsive to every person as I have been the rest of my life, uh, or I'm going to be unreachable. And I'm going to miss out on opportunities to be helpful to random people. And I felt like the <laughs> it, would, it would have been better for me to, to go the private route and you know be a little bit harder to reach. But I felt like the right thing to do was to still be accessible and just, okay, so if it hurts my image a little bit, that's it's a small price to pay. And so uh, on my public email address, though, the, the, I guess the attempt to protect myself is an auto-reply. Uh, that basically says, you know, look, I have, uh, I do get more emails in a day than I have the time to respond to. And uh, here are a bunch of resources that might be relevant, depending on the kinds of questions that you have. So there are various teams that handle different things for me. Uh, there are some, you know, links to books and podcasts and articles and talks. And then um, I have a, a triage team that works with me where if there's something that I think we can collectively be helpful on, but I don't have time to engage with it in that moment, I will forward it and let them figure it out and then come back and tell me if they think I can be helpful. What would an example of a triage team task be and what is their what does their activity look like? So what would be a, a, a real or hypothetical example of something you would send to them? And then what do they actually do with it? So I'll give you a bunch of quick examples. You tell me which one you want to run with. Okay. Uh, so s- standard triage. I'm looking for career advice. Uh, mm-hmm. I am interested in becoming an organizational psychologist, and I wonder what the, the best place to start is. Uh, I'm thinking about writing a book. What advice do you like to give to writers? Are these all from students? They're from all over the all over the map. Probably similar to what you get. Mm-hmm. Okay. And any others? I can pick from those. Or yeah, no, I can I can rattle off a bunch more. Um, yeah, let's try a few more. Can can you um, can you help me solve my problem with my boss? Uh, can you fix my organizational culture? Uh, can you get me a raise? Uh, you know, I think <laughs> there's, okay, a, there's a funny version. Yeah, go ahead. Let's let's go with can you fix my organizational culture? Um, no. <laughs> no. Okay, got it. 
Uh, no, it's, I mean, it's hard, right? So what, what I would do in that situation is, uh, if, you know, if, if, if somebody wrote me a nine page email on that, I would just forward it right to triage. If it were a two paragraph email, I might respond and say, uh, you know, here are my, my two favorite books on the topic are Switch by the Heath Brothers and The Culture Code by Dan Coyle. Uh, you, I, I think there's a lot of great, great advice in there. If you read anything and have questions on it, let me know. Uh, or if, there, if you have questions on things that they didn't answer, come back to me and I'll suggest some other books to check out. And if it goes to the triage team, what they will do is they might send a bunch of advice and articles and books. They might suggest a phone call. Uh, or they might come back to me and say, we're not really sure how to respond to this. Do you know anyone else that we should talk to? The triage team, uh, are those comprised of uh, student slaves or are those full-time, <laughs> no. em- are full-time employees? Who are these people? Uh, so Santa's it, it workshop be, elves. I need some yeah, of these triage. Yeah, no, people. it's, um, <laughs> it's, uh, I've worked with a couple, uh, a couple different structures for it. So, uh, sometimes it's, it's a person who, who works with me in a different capacity who then does triage as a side project. Uh, sometimes it's a, it's a master's or PhD student, uh, who's, uh, who's doing this, you know, kind of in, in spare time. And, uh, I think in one case, it, Actually, maybe in two cases, it's somebody who's aspiring to go to grad school in my field and wants to see behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. The reason I chose the can you fix your organizational culture is because it's it's the only one that hopped out as a broad question that might have an opportunity hiding in it for you yeah. compared to the others. Uh, so I was, I was curious about how, how that might be treated. Uh, how do you decide... Uh, what's important in the sense that you have many, many, many different projects you could focus on, many, many different books you could write, many, many different people you could, you could meet. Uh, how do you decide on projects? And I'm may, still trying and, to figure and, that out. Yeah, maybe we could do it. It, may, it might be easiest with the rearview mirror in the sense that you yeah. look at a project and say, how did you, of the universe of options... Yep. Why did you choose that one? So, okay, so uh, two two quick examples on that. One is uh, after Give and Take came out, I I felt like I, I was ready to start thinking about a new topic and writing a new book, and I felt like a book was a good choice for a few reasons. One, I feel like unlike articles, it actually has staying power, right? Yeah, I think that for sure. <laughs> I'm not sure that the pen is mightier than the sword, but I definitely think the ink lasts longer. Uh, you know, I think art- articles kind of fade after a week. People keep books, they reread them, they lend them. Uh, so I-, I felt like that was meaningful. And I also felt like it was a chance to to challenge my own my own thinking a little bit. I, I found that I- when I wrote Give and Take, I actually learned more about the topic that I was studying than, than I had when just doing research on it because uh, it forced me to synthesize lots of different kinds of ideas and also to go and meet people who are living the principles I'd been studying. And so I wanted to go through that learning exercise again. And the way that I chose what the topic was going to be was I paid attention to the questions I was being asked over and over again that I thought were really fascinating and important and hard to answer. And there were two that kept coming up over and over again. One was from senior executives who were consistently asking, how do I fight groupthink? How do I, you know, I know there are people who have different ideas for projects we should be pursuing, people who have creative thoughts people who might disagree with a big strategic decision, and I don't hear from them until it's too late. How do I change that? And then on the flip side, my students were, were giving me their version of that, which was, 
we come into an organization at 22 or 27 and we have all these ideas and nobody above us wants to hear them. Like you MBA student, you are overqualified and underexperienced. Shut up until you know something about this industry. Uh, how do we overcome that and get our ideas heard? And I realized those were two sides of the same coin. Uh, mm-hmm. That and and that you know nobody had. There were lots of books about creativity. Nobody had really tackled the question of of what do you do after you have a creative idea? How do you champion it? How do you get it heard? And I had I'd been doing some research on on proactivity and creativity that was relevant, and that those dots all connected. And I said, okay, there's a there's a nice Venn diagram here of a problem that people are are dealing with constantly uh, that really matters. And that I also have some sort of unique insight into. And so I want to take this on. And for you, how do you, how do you determine if a project like that has succeeded or failed? Oh, I want to, I want to hear your answer to this. I, <laughs> this, is, this is one of the worst things about being an entrepreneur of ideas as opposed to products or services. Right. Uh, like user counts are not that helpful, right? It doesn't, it doesn't matter how many books you've sold if nobody read them. Right. Uh, and I, I, I won't name any names here, but there, there is probably an economist who sold a lot of books about inequality that I'm not sure anyone read. And <laughs> <laughs> you, you wonder, does that have an impact? You don't know. Um, for me, impact is seeing the ideas getting embedded in people's language uh, and then in their actions. And so, you know, for, for me, part of the way that I felt give and take had been more successful than I, than I had expected going in was I would come into an organization and they would tell me who the givers, takers, and matchers were. Uh, or they would tell me how they were trying to weed out the, the most selfish takers from their hiring process. And I'd say, huh, wow, this is, this is in your vocabulary. That means, I, I think so much of what I do as a social scientist is um, I, I try to provide a framework and some evidence to describe things that maybe you've, you've lived but not known how to talk about. And so if, if that happens, that's powerful. And then, of course, if behavior change happens, that's even more powerful. But it's, it's really hard to know the scale and scope of that. And so, you know, largely, I, I think anecdotally, I pay attention to, you know, yes, you know, selling more books is probably better than fewer. Having more podcast listeners is better than fewer. Uh, but ultimately, it's it's reader feedback, listener feedback that, you know, if somebody says, hey, uh, I tried your approach, it worked. Or I tried it, it didn't work, but here's what I learned. Uh, it feels like it, you know, it, it at least advanced somebody's thinking and that that feels like a contribution. You've been at this a lot longer than I have. Uh, you've also had a lot more success. How, how do you know when you're when you're successful or when you've had an impact? Good question. I, uh, I'll tell you what I try to do. And that is to select projects uh, where I win, even if it fails. And so, so I really try to embed the success question into the design or selection of the project. And I'll, I'll explain what I mean by that. This is reflective of thinking that I arrived at myself. It's also uh, been been talked about at some length by uh, Scott Adams, the creator of Dilbert, uh, who has written about this in the form of career advice, which I thought was really good, and which was also Scott Adams' uh, essays at one point were highlighted by Mark Andreessen, very well-known entrepreneur and investor, uh, certainly. Uh, And the basic idea is that I try to choose projects where I am heavily weighting two things. One is acquisition of new skills, development of new skills, or just uh, 
uh, rapid development of existing skills and uh, developing relationships with people I can know for 10, 20 years and would enjoy spending time with, who are also some of the best people in the world at what they do. Uh, so I, I try to, this might seem like a, a dodge, but it's not a dodge because um, over time, at least, I've realized how many factors that could dictate, say, commercial success, which in is is often a corollary to impact in terms of the number of hands you can get into, the number of eyes you can get in front of. For instance, The 4-Hour Chef, I mean, by far the hardest book, the most elaborate book, the most detailed book I've ever done. Uh, very proud of that book, but it was also a gamble, which I knew going in, uh, because it was the the first book announced along with the uh, launch of Amazon Publishing in the New York Times, and or I should say, covered by the New York Times. And for those who don't remember the history, what that meant was Amazon said for the first time, in effect, we are going to compete with publishers for writing talent. And we are going to write advances, in some cases, big advances to authors, and we are going to be producing books ourselves. Uh, and that scared the living hell, rightfully so, out of the publishing establishment. Uh, and I, I anticipated that would mean blowback from Barnes & Noble. I did not anticipate that it would be boycotted by every retailer you can imagine. I mean, uh, I, I want to say Target, Costco, Walmart, all of the big box guys, uh, in addition to the Barnes and Nobles of the world and uh, independence on top of that. So the there were so many, so many elements outside of my control. And I found that experience to be really punishing. Uh, I, I was, I've never with a book had my ass handed to me so, <laughs> so badly. Not to not to point fingers because we both have friends at the New York Times, but the the New York Times bestseller list is not a strictly compiled by the numbers list. There is some secret sauce or at least a black box involved. So, for instance, with the, with Four Hour Chef, I sold more than a hundred thousand copies in week one. Wow, and that's huge. I, it, it was, and I'm not going to name names because I, they were also the 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 books involved were very good. But there was a book that, according to Nielsen Bookscan, which is how I was tracking my sales, sold about twenty thousand copies, and it was two spots above me <laughs> on the New York Times. Uh, and so all of this, whether it's subjectivity uh, and or factor factors outside of my control led me at that point to really double down on trying to embed the determinants of success in the designer choice of the project uh, I think pro that's, projects themselves that's so compelling because what what it says to me is you, you decided that learning and relationship building are the two leading indicators of success but also there there were the ends in and of themselves and so you, even if they don't drive success, you're still going to be glad you in, invested in something that, that sort of formed a meaningful connection or taught you something. Uh, that, that is such a clever workaround to the problem of, do I, do I know whether I'm accomplishing anything? Yeah, it, uh, it's, uh, I wish I had come to that conclusion sooner, quite frankly, because the, if you approach things with that lens, at least in my experience so far, eventually you're going to win. 
uh, as as measured or determined by the outside world, if if that makes sense, right? It's like if yeah. you continue to acquire skills and deep relationships with people you care for who are also incredibly good at what they do, uh, you will <laughs> success cannot be kept from you indefinitely. And if it weren't for the four hour chef and that uh, incredible learning experience, but also gigantic donkey kick to the face, uh, I would not have started podcasting. Right. And, uh, it it wouldn't have happened. And that it was through the four hour chef and looking for the uncrowded, meaning undervalued, but high leverage, uh, avenues for promotion, which ended up being podcasts. I do that for every book. And in that particular case, podcasts were still very undervalued. And, uh, that led me to have these incredible experiences on the on the on these various podcasts with Joe Rogan and Mark Maron and uh, Chris Hardwick and the Nerdist guys and so on and came away thinking wow not only did these podcasts really move the needle in a way that was so disproportionate based on how undervalued they were at the time but. Uh, I also had a hell of a good time doing them and I could be yeah. myself and I didn't have to memorize a 20 second sound bite after getting my <laughs> face airbrushed for an hour at five o'clock in the morning for a, 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 a an AM TV show yeah. where maybe I will be asked a question that isn't read off a teleprompter behind my head, but maybe not. And, uh, that was a real turning point for me and it, and it, uh, so I'm grateful for it, uh, and uh, yeah, that's that's been that's been my approach since. Anyway, sorry for being so long long winded, but that's that's how I think about it. I think that's powerful, and it's it's something it, it resonates a lot with me because I I got into the podcast world much later than you did, and felt like you know it was by that point pretty crowded, and you know there are a lot of interesting people having interesting conversations. And so I, I was pretty hesitant about it at first and then eventually said, okay, my biggest problem is I have spent the past five years getting invited into some of the most interesting organizations on earth and telling them things I already know, mostly. And I'm not learning anymore. And so even if the podcast completely fails, I'm going to pick the people in the places that I want to learn from. And then you know I'm going to come away with new insights on the back end that in some format I will share. And it, it, it was extremely valuable. It, I mean, it, it gave me all kinds of ideas for articles and books and for research projects I wanted to take on. And uh, it, would, it would have been great even if we didn't do a season two and beyond. And I think that, <laughs> I think you're right. I think there, there are ways to structure pr- new projects so that even if they don't achieve con- conventional success, uh, you still gain more than you invested in them. Yeah, Definitely. And speaking of learning, you mentioned two books earlier, Switch and The Culture Code, I think they were. Is that yep. right? Uh, what other books have you gifted the most to other people, besides your own, of course? But, uh, <laughs> I try not to but, gift. But, but outside... Wait, hold on, Tim. You, you, can't, you can't gift someone your own book. It's like, here's this thing I wrote. You do a bunch of work and digest it, as opposed to, if we know each other, maybe you should just, we could just talk about it, right? Yeah, I'm just, <laughs> I'm just screwing with you. You know, it, it, I know. Makes, me, it makes me think of um, 
I don't know if you've seen What About Bob? Classic. Yeah, of course. Fantastic movie. And he was like, there's this groundbreaking new book out, Bob. Let me let me find it here. And he drags his finger back and forth on the shelf, which has like 100 copies of his own book. And he goes, ah, yes, here it is. And he pulls it <laughs> off. But what, what books have I, you recommended I, I have or gifted? To, I, yeah. I have to tell you as a quick aside. Yeah. Uh, I, I was speaking at a Google event a few years ago, and a bunch of people just went way too far in self-promoting their books. And it was it was over the top. And I, I, I got up there, I ditched my slides. And I, about halfway through my talk, I said, all right, I, I've got to tell you, um, if you really want to understand what motivates people, you have to read this incredible book, which I wrote. <laughs> <laughs> I would normally not be that sarcastic or that snarky, but I just felt like somebody needed to acknowledge the elephant in the room. <laughs> but otherwise, I would never recommend my own book, right? So to your question, what have I gifted the most? Uh, I've got a, I've got a few favorites, so you know I, I I think I tend to gift mostly in the genre that I write in. Uh, so you know thinking about uh, big ideas that are evidence based that can improve the way we work and live. Uh, and so uh, mistakes were made, but not by me is a favorite. Mm-hmm. Yep, uh, I'm sure you know that by Taverson Aronson. Mm-hmm. Uh, great book on why we, we our egos get in the way of just about everything and how to overcome that. Um, I've gifted Susan Cain's book, Quiet, uh, mm-hmm. more times than I can count. And interestingly, I, st- I started out gifting it to introverts, thinking, okay, this is going to be a book that shows you all of your strengths and the ways you're not alone in the world. Um, and you know, it certainly spoke to me that way <laughs> as an introvert. And I have to tell you, the, the biggest fans of that book, from my experience, are actually extroverts who say, oh, you know, I need to embrace my quieter side and I need to make more room for the quiet people around me because I'm missing out on their brilliance. Uh, so that's, I think that's always fun. And it's especially fun to give that book to an engineer who has never heard of introversion, extroversion. And it's a giant light bulb. I actually had a student uh, early on who, who read it and said, oh my gosh, my boyfriend isn't boring. He's just an introvert. I didn't realize. <laughs> uh, anyway, so that that's another favorite. And then um, I have uh, it's it's a newer book, so I haven't I haven't been able to gift it as many times yet. But I've um, I've recommended a lot recently that uh, if people want to want to figure out what their uh, what their biggest blind spots are, uh, that one of the things they ought to do is uh, is spend a little bit of time reading Tasha Yurik's book on self awareness, and it's, I think it's called Insight. And the the insight that I took away from it was that. Uh, people who are really self-aware don't spend a lot of time agonizing over why they are the way they are. They don't. It's, mm-hmm. They don't find it that productive. I guess I've never found it that productive to psychoanalyze myself. Why did I? Why did I get the way I am? I don't know. There could be a, b- a million biogenetic and life experience factors, but it doesn't really matter. Here's how I am, and then how do I work with that to be effective and live a life of meaning. Uh, and I think it was a it was a really cool book on on how to become more aware of what your strengths and weaknesses are. Do you know how to spell the author's name? Uh, yeah, Tasha T A S H A, and uh-huh. then Yurik E U R I C H, I believe. Cool. I will I will find it uh, and put it in the show notes for everyone. Yes, E U R I C H. There it is. There you, also, there you go. Also, also available on audio for people who are interested subtitled the surprising truth about how others see us, how we see ourselves and why dot, dot, dot. That's all I can see on the preview. (laughs) (laughs) I'll put that in the show notes. Uh, 
yeah, blind spots. What a thing. And uh, how do you, are, are there any other tools or questions you ask yourself or have other people uh, prompted with to help you further find your blind spots? Yeah. So one of the things I learned about, uh, actually doing a podcast episode on, uh, on your hidden personality, uh, I went to Bain, the consulting firm, in part because they spend a lot of time building brand new teams where people who have, know nothing about each other have to go into, you know, often in their 20s, into very senior executives' offices and tell them how to run their companies. And they, they have a lot riding on whether these brand new teams can interact smoothly. And so they, not surprisingly, put a lot of energy into figuring out, okay, you know, what, what are the, the traits and strengths and weaknesses of, of everybody and how do we get up to speed on that as fast as possible? And I met a manager there who had said something really interesting. He said, you know, when, when I buy a new car, it comes with an owner's manual, so I know how to operate it. But when I work with a new person who's way more complex than a car, I don't get anything. And so I, I'm kind of starting from square one when, in fact... Uh, they have all these experiences that could teach me something from their past about how to work with them better in the present and the future. And so what he did, uh, his name is Or Skolnick, he sat down and he wrote up a one-pager on how to work with him effectively. Uh, what are his strengths? What are his weaknesses? What are the triggers that bring out the worst in him? Uh, what are the, you know, the moments that bring out the best in, in him? And then he didn't stop there. He asked his team to write their user manual for him so that he could gauge his own self-awareness. And, of course, he found the team's analysis much more insightful and accurate than his own uh, because of the blind spot factor in part. But now every new person who works with him gets that one pager and gets to immediately start as if they've known him for a month or two and say, okay, you know, here are the things I might want to adapt if, if I want to be really effective with this manager. And so I've gone, I've gone and done that. I asked a bunch of people who work with me to write my user manual. And it uh, is very simple. The questions are, uh, what are my strengths? What brings those out? What are my weaknesses? What brings those out? What are my blind spots? And what do you know now about working with me that you wish you had known when we first started working together? Oh, great. Invaluable. What, what, is, what are some of the answers to that last one? <laughs> uh, the, the last one, uh, I, I've gotten a few funny ones. Uh, one, one that really caught me off guard was uh, it really bothers you deeply at your core when somebody pretends to know something that they don't. <laughs> you, you you just all of a sudden go from being a pretty friendly affable person to uh to just in intense prosecutor mode uh which was a, 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 a novel a novel observation for me uh i got a, i got another one that said that um i think the exact quote was that i am unaware that sometimes when i say an idea is not good i've just crushed somebody's three months that they've invested in that idea. And, and here I am thinking I'm helping them move on, you know, more efficiently and not, not at all aware of, of how much they've already invested in the idea. So yeah, well, you, maybe you're doing both. I think that, uh, better <laughs> yeah, to crush, I could probably be, do it better, better to, better to crush three months of <laughs> effort and save them the next three years, but agreed, yeah, pretty, but, but maybe, maybe they don't have to be crushed at all. They could yeah, be let down a little more gently. They could just be um, very strongly squeezed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, but, then on the, the other side of that, 
I think mostly when we, Tim, when we talk about blind spots, we think about our weaknesses, right? So there are things we're not good at, but we don't realize it and we can't see them because we're, we're inside of our own heads. We also have blind spots about our strengths. Mm, yeah, you might great, call them bright great spots. Point. Great point. Uh, there, there are things you're good at that you don't even know you're good at. Yeah, and that's really a good point. I think that you, you need to see those through other people's eyes too. So I have some, some colleagues who developed this great tool at the University of Michigan. It's called the Reflected Best Self-Exercise. Hmm. And I, I, have, uh, I have all my students do it, MBAs, undergrads, senior executives, everyone in between. And they, they often come back and say it was eye-opening and occasionally even life-changing. Uh, what, what you do is you reach out to usually 15 to 20 people who know you well. Uh, you get to choose them, often different walks of life. So some colleagues, maybe a boss, a friend, a family member. And you ask them to tell a story about a time when you were at your best. And you collect all these stories. It is the most delightful week of emails you will ever get. <laughs> this is how amazing you are again and again and again. <laughs> <laughs> but then you have some work to do. You have to analyze the stories and find the common themes and figure out, okay, what is the portrait of me when I'm at my best? And what is it that activates those strengths? And I, uh, I first did this my first year of grad school. And I, um, I learned that, that apparently, I didn't realize this, but one of my strengths was actually recognizing other people's strengths. Uh, it showed up in almost every story was, you know, I was at my best when I was helping someone else be at their best. And so I said, I've got to make that part of my job. I have mm. to figure out a way to do that because I love it and people are telling me that I'm good at it or at least that they like it. Uh, and I never would have thought of that. It just did not cross my mind. And so it's, it's an exercise I'd like to see people do, you know, I think every couple of years because sometimes you, you have new people in your life who see different strengths, your strengths evolve, you find new ways to activate them. And I'm a, I'm a big fan of that exercise. I love it. Yeah, have you done that's- it? I have not. No, I've done the opposite, which is, I suppose, <laughs> on brand for my uh, historical b- brand of self-flagellation. Well, not, it wasn't specifically my reflected worst self, but uh, I did a 360 uh, interview process with uh, a, a whole group of people I've worked with. And uh, <laughs> as uh, as Joe Gebbia one of the co-founders of Airbnb. Oh, I know, Joe. Uh, we suffered yeah, through TED together. Yeah, said to me uh, when we were doing our podcast, or maybe when we were talking, either way, he did it also. And I was like, am I the only one who had like a near nervous breakdown and just wanted to cry in my car? He's like, <laughs> he's like, nope, same thing happened to me. And I was like, fuck, man, that was rough. It's like, because the I think part of what made it so rough for me is the way we did it. And I think this is how it's typically done, but I've only done it once you get all this feedback, some of which is very, very, uh, can be very blunt and very brutal, which is all anonymized. And for me, that is very hard, not because I want to bludgeon the people who gave me hard feedback, but because I want to fix uh, or apologize. I want to fix things or apologize for past transgressions or mistakes or uh, bad delivery or whatever it might be. And I can't do that when it's anonymized and a good so facilitator painful. won't give you the names, of course. Yeah. Uh, even if you try to kind of trick them into it by triangulating, which, which I'm, I'm not too proud to say I, tr- I tried, uh, <laughs> and, uh, really tough. So I like the idea of this reflected best self exercise though, not to offset all of the psychic damage done by the 360, <laughs> but because, uh, I don't know if I don't know if if you have 
observe this in yourself. I've certainly observed it in myself, and that is, and in many of my friends who are good problem solvers. Uh, they are rewarded for solving problems, whether it's in math class in primary school or for solving thorny dissertation issues or solving problems with a marketing campaign or spaghetti code or whatever it might be. And as they are continually positively reinforced for solving problems, they begin to look at the world through the lens of finding problems. And I certainly have done that. And as a result, I'm never looking for the rarely have I looked for the strengths that are going unseen. I'm just looking for all the things that are screwed up or the weaknesses or the Achilles heels so that I can fix them. And I've become more and more convinced, I'm really glad you brought this up, that it is equally important to look for those bright spots, as you put it, not just the blind spots. I think so. Really important. I think so. And it's funny, I had a a mentor, Rick Price, who was trained as a clinical psychologist before he moved into the organizational world. And he he used to have a a code with his wife that she would just always remind him, Rick, sympathy, not solutions. (laughs) When When I tell you something, I do not necessarily want you to fix it. I just want you to I just want to know that you care. Right. I want to feel heard. And I, I think for those of us who like to solve problems, and probably especially for those of us who are men, uh, that's, that's probably sage advice. But <laughs> the, the, the interesting thing that, uh, that, that I think that surfaces for me is there's another reason why you want to know what your strengths are, because we often misapply them or overuse them. There's, yeah. uh, there's research from, from the Center for Creative Leadership, which has shown that uh, one of the ways that you identify career derailers is you look at strengths that people overuse. So, you know, you've, you've gotten reinforced all your life for being assertive, and then you talk over people in meetings so much that nobody else can get a word in. Uh, you, you know, you've been reinforced for a lot of your career uh, for having charisma, and that becomes a crutch, and you don't prepare to, for the talks that you give, uh, and you end up, you know, kind of underperforming or underdelivering. Um, and, you know, that's, of course, I think when, when you think about yourself as a problem solver, that's a case potentially of strengths overused. And so... One of the things that I've taken out of the reflective best self is I don't just want to be clear about what my strengths are. I want to know when is an appropriate time to use them and when might be a time to actually say, you know, I might want to turn off this strength so that somebody else can use that strength. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Or turn off that strength so that you uh, don't use it to cover for weaknesses that perhaps you should address, right? Yeah. that's certainly something that I've experienced personally as well. It's easy to become a hammer looking for nails. Uh, <laughs> uh, what we, we only have a few minutes left, but I'm I'm really curious to know. You mentioned some time back the architecture of your week, right? How you have some days that are working on projects or talking to family, but no one else. And uh, I, I have. And this is fairly common among a lot of the high-producing individuals I've, I've come across. I, I know Jack Dorsey did this for quite a while, and maybe he still does, but kind of separating out days, not just portions of days, but days for very specific things, product focus or hiring yep. focus or fill-in-the-blank. And 
uh, for instance, you know, we're recording this on a Friday. When I do any recording, I try to do my recording on Mondays and Fridays, and I also try to place the vast majority of my phone calls or admin type uh, tasks that I need to be involved with in some sense on Mondays, right? So I do have a weekly structure. Uh, I also have kind of certain daily non-negotiables that give me a structure around which to build everything else. It provides me with a sense of of control uh, that I find very uh, helpful, but also a it puts a lot on autopilot so that I'm not making a lot of extraneous decisions. So I'd love to hear if if you have any uh, routines or activities, whether it's on a weekly or a daily basis, that you do very consistently. And that could be like the first two hours of your day. It could be the first, what you do in the first hour. It could be the last half hour. It doesn't really matter. But uh, are there any particular routines that you treat as very important for yourself? You know, I I did for a long time, and there's still some that I use, but I have become a little less routine-driven in the past few years. I think in part because... I, the, 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 the moment we talked about in, in the classroom earlier of, you know, of kind of losing track of the lesson plan and, and just following the student questions, that's really unusual for me. Um, I, I tend to be so laser focused and linear that I worry I'm not being flexible and adaptable enough. And so one of, one of the routines I've been working on is just being comfortable shifting my routine. Uh, but I'm, prob- I'm probably unusual in that way. So the things, the things I'll tell you the, the changes that I've made um, the, to new routines that I found most helpful. One is, uh, I, as a morning person, I used to try to do all my creative work in the morning because I knew that was when I was most alert. And then I read a bunch of research showing that you actually do your most creative work when you're a little fuzzier uh, because that's when your thinking is more nonlinear. It's when you make more unexpected leaps uh, and you know, kind of free associations. And so now what I'll do is um, at night before I go to bed, when I know I want to write the next morning, I, st- I still like to write when I'm fresh so that it actually makes sense. Uh, but the night before, I'll actually start jotting down some ideas. Uh, it might be a couple sentences. It might be an outline. And then I've got some, hopefully some novel material to run with in a more organized way in the morning. And so you can obviously flip that if, if you're a, a night owl and say, huh, maybe I actually have some creative ideas in the morning when I feel like I can't think straight. You don't want to think straight if you're trying to be creative. Uh, so that's that's one that I really like. Um, another one that I've d- adopted recently, which uh, which has been extremely productive for me, is I actually take phone calls right after workouts uh, because I've found that <laughs> right after a workout, uh, I'm just not I'm not very uh, I'm not in work mode yet, mm-hmm. and so I feel like I need some kind of transition space. Uh, to get back into focus. And, and oftentimes, I'm like, ah, I just wasted the half hour, uh, you know, after, after I waste our cardio. And so I might as well have had a conversation during that time. Uh, and so that's become white space. And then my, um, my last favorite routine, uh, which, which is definitely on the new side, is uh, I actually go to sleep listening to podcasts. Uh, I, for years, I would read or watch TV going to sleep. Uh, but it's so much more relaxing to not look at a screen yeah, and I find that uh, I I process the information a little bit more deeply than if I had read it, and I also fall asleep faster. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yeah, sounds sounds like win win. I haven't tried going to sleep with podcasts. Do you have a favorite bedtime podcast or uh, types of podcasts? 
I, I don't like uh, I don't like our kinds of podcasts at, at bedtime because I actually yeah. want to be awake and learn from them. Uh, so I just I just did I binged the Shrink Next Door uh, in a in a few nights, which was fascinating. And I, I ended up staying up way too late one night because I just wanted to know where the story went. But the other nights it was great. Um, I did uh, I did cereal that way. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I guess it's mostly more of the uh, either the the narrative or fiction style shows. Uh-huh. Cool. What does your workout regimen look like? You mentioned exercise. So I uh, I do I lift weights twice a week. I do my target is three days a week of cardio, which is usually a mix of an ultimate frisbee game, uh, tennis match, and uh, elliptical. And then uh, lately, actually just a few weeks ago, I got back on a, a diving board for the first time. Wow. I guess I retired half my life ago, and I had not been on a real diving board in, in more than a dozen years, and uh, got back on to, to try to relearn some of the old, the old tricks, uh, which hurt very badly the next morning, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but has, has, been, has been a lot of fun and a good workout, too. What prompted getting back into the diving? Um, a couple things. One, I was, uh, I, I happened to catch some, uh, I think the senior national, uh, us finals. And after spending six years of my life, almost every waking hour, either thinking about it or doing it, uh, you know, the moment I watch it, I want to get back into it again. And, uh, also I'd, I'd been uh, teaching our kids some techniques. And so it seemed like it was, uh, it was a good time to, <laughs> to, to get my skills back in order. <laughs> Uh, well, Adam, we could, uh, I mean, I've, we're, we're not even a, a tenth of the way through my notes. It sounds like your, <laughs> oh, your, early, your early day lesson plans. Uh, but I know we, uh, we have to wrap up shortly. Let me ask this and, uh, I'll, I'll have maybe one or two questions after this, but if you could put a quote message symbol anything you want on a billboard uh you've probably heard this question before but metaphorically speaking to get a message out to billions of people let's say what might you put on that billboard could be that one's that one's easy yeah i I think the most meaningful way to succeed is to help other people succeed Mm, dig it well it's kind of the way you live your life so no surprise there yeah (laughs) <laughs> try, 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 man. I, uh, I, I, and certainly the way that you have lived your life, it's, I feel like you're just getting started. I'm very uh, excited to see what you do next. And, uh, people can certainly learn more at adamgrant.net. Is that correct? As far as I know, as far as you know, as far as I know, and then on social, on Twitter at Adam M Grant, Instagram Adam Grant, Facebook Adam M Grant. Uh, is there anything you would like to point people towards? Uh, anything else you would like to say, recommend for people, uh, encourage people to check out? Anything at all that you'd like to say before we wrap up? I, maybe, maybe just one thought on productivity because it's we've talked a bunch about it, and it's it's such a core theme for you and, and your audience. I think one of the mistakes that people make when they try to boost their productivity is they're focusing on the wrong goals. I don't think being more productive is actually that motivating. <laughs> it's like ah, I got more done. I wrote words today. More words today. Woo! I think that you know, for me, productivity is a means to an end, and I've always been more productive when I found a project that I care about or, you know, a topic that I'm really intensely curious about. 
And I think that, that frequently when you feel like you're not productive, it's, it's not necessarily because you're lazy or because you have bad habits. It's because you're not working on the right projects yeah. and you're, you haven't found the ones that are intrinsically motivating and meaningful to you. And so I think that, you know, I guess I would just say, you know, <laughs> I think if, if productivity is your goal, maybe you've got the wrong goal. That's a great point. That is a fantastic point and very well said. Yeah. Maybe it's not how you process email. Maybe it's impotent goals. <laughs> uh, maybe it's the wrong project. That's a great, great way to put it. Uh, well, Adam, thank you so much for taking the time today. This has been a lot of fun. Thank and you for having me, Tim. It's been, uh, it's been a, a delight and a treat to, to join. Yeah, definitely. So I'm, I'm sure my audience will have more questions for you. So maybe we do a round two at some point. Uh, but for now, this is a great first installment and I really appreciate you making the space to do this. And, um, for everybody listening, I will have links to everything we discussed, lots of details, all the books, everything else at the, uh, page for show notes as per usual, tim.blog forward slash podcast, where you can find everything. Uh, Adam, thank you again. Thank you. Let me, uh, can I close with one question for you? Yes. Yes. You don't you can. have to. You can decide whether you want to run it or not. But <laughs> fire away. I, I would love to know uh, what big projects is on the horizon for you next, and what your uh, your biggest challenge is right now. Ooh. Yes. All right. So big big things on the horizon for me are uh, some very large scientific projects uh, involving researchers and uh, studies related to. Uh, mostly classical psychedelics is applied to what are considered uh, widely intractable uh, psychological or psychiatric disorders, whether that is PTSD or treatment-resistant depression, where I've already helped to fund studies at places like Johns Hopkins or eating disorders. Uh, There's a very long list. Uh, And uh, that, that would be a very large project uh, and uh, more of a series of projects coming up. Uh, let's see. Uh, biggest challenge. Uh, biggest challenge would be perhaps wanting to disappear for a while <laughs> uh, for an extended period of time, which I've been doing in increments of weeks, but uh, feeling a very strong call to sort of disappear off into the wilderness <laughs> for a while. Uh, and, uh, struggle is too strong a word, but, uh, feeling perhaps conflicted about the best way to do that. Uh, and, uh, I, f- I feel confident that I and my support structure will, figure it out, uh, in, in, in some way, but, uh, yeah, kind of reconciling that it's a very difficult to, uh, explain feeling. It's really more of a, like a very core, uh, emotional or visceral drive that I have without much left brain analytical, huh. uh, it's an Excel spreadsheet data to support it. Um, and I think coming from a life where I have certainly over relied on that analytical machinery, uh, 
I, I think it's going to take me some very interesting places. Uh, so it's, it's just really building up the courage or dare I say faith. Oh my God, what a word that is <laughs> uh, to sort of follow the feeling and believe that the, like the, the understanding will come later. So that's well, maybe a very strange answer, but that's no, the answer. It's interesting. What, what I like about it is you, you get so much done that you can disappear for a long time and still be annoyingly productive. <laughs> the, one, yeah. uh, the one other thing I was, I was uh, just top of mind wondering about is you got LeBron and his trainer. Uh -huh. uh, who are your next dream guests? And <laughs> if, if, if you could have anybody. Yeah, you know who I'd love to have on, and, and the timing might actually be pretty good, uh, is uh, th there, there are quite a few. A lot of the names no one would recognize, uh, but uh, many of my old mentors and professors, and I just recorded one that should be coming out uh, soon. But uh, I would really enjoy to have a long conversation with Oprah and also with Howard Stern. Uh, <laughs> and they both they both recently had books come out, so I think the timing could be decent. It would only be worth doing if they were willing to really play ball and have a long form conversation like this one. Uh, but I find both of them endlessly fascinating, and uh, I, I think that their their abilities, if you kind of look between the the if you listen between the notes of music, so to speak, t to really observe how they can craft conversations, navigate interviews, and so on, it it's it's really remarkable. Uh, and n not to mention the macro level perspective of their careers, but uh, those would be two that come to mind. That's so, very cool. Well, you kind of yeah. want them to interview you then, so you can you can experience <laughs> it. But yeah, I guess turning the tables works too. Yeah, well, I mean, certainly both of them are pretty good at saying, oh, you're going to interview me? Wait a second. <laughs> <laughs> I have some questions for you, so who knows? But I, I think that would be uh, I think that would be fun if they're willing to play ball, right? I wouldn't want to have someone drag them kicking and screaming into doing it because I, I don't think either side would enjoy that. But if they, if they were if they were game, uh, I think that a, a long form conversation with either or both of them would be would be quite fun. And uh, thanks for asking. No, I look forward to hearing both of those. <laughs> well, to be, to be continued on that one. And uh, I, will, uh, I will let you get back to your day. But uh, Adam, speaking of to be continued, as, as we said before recording, it, it is no small miracle that we haven't actually <laughs> bumped into each other at uh, given the many, many concentric, or I should say, overlapping circles that uh, that we we live and operate in uh, so it's it's nice to to spend this amount of time on the on the phone having this conversation and uh, hopefully be able to share some share some food break some bread raise a drink at some point in the not too distant future i will look forward to that in the meantime thank you again for having me of course and uh to everyone who is tuning in. Thanks so much for listening. And until next time, take a peek at tim.blog forward slash podcast. Hey guys, this is Tim again. Just a few more things before you take off. Number one, this is Five Bullet Friday. Do you want to get 
a short email from me. And would you enjoy getting a short email from me every Friday that provides a little morsel of fun before the weekend? And Five Bullet Friday is a very short email where I share the coolest things I've found or that I've been pondering over the week. That could include favorite new albums that I've discovered. It could include gizmos and gadgets and all sorts of weird shit that I've somehow dug up in the uh, the world of the esoteric as I do. It could include favorite articles that I've read and that I've shared with my close friends, for instance. And it's very short. It's just a little tiny bite of goodness before you head off for the weekend. So if you want to receive that, check it out. Just go to fourhourworkweek.com. That's fourhourworkweek.com all spelled out and just drop in your email and you will get the very next one. And if you sign up, I hope you enjoy it. This episode is brought to you by Zapier. Z-A-P-I-E-R. You may in your own mind say Zapier, but it's not Zapier. It's Zapier like happier. They are a new sponsor, but not new to me as a service at all. I've been using them for many years now. If you run your own business, think about all the hours and hours, maybe endless hours you spend moving information from one software program to another, all because they don't easily work together. Well, now they can automatically, thanks to Zapier. My team has been using Zapier for years, as I mentioned, which helps us with a ton of tasks, including, let's just take one example, connecting Facebook ads campaigns to our email platform. You can also, as I do, automate the posting of your Instagram photos to all social platforms. This has saved me and my team hundreds of hours alone. My team has also raved about Zapier's support, which is very important. If things go sideways, you want to be able to reach someone. And in their words, it is in a class of its own. A class of its own, that's the exact verbatim quote from one of my employees. As with all sponsors of this podcast, we try to test everything ourselves, and we have used Zapier as full-paying retail customers. That is, we paid for the service long before we ever had contact with the company as a sponsor. They support more than 1,500 business applications, so the possibilities for automating processes are virtually endless. You may know, if you've read the 4-Hour Workweek, that the third step is automation. Not adding headcount to a messy problem uh, to try to fix it, but automating as much as possible. You want to eliminate, automate, and only then delegate. And Zapier is one of the best pieces of automation software that I've ever come across. Uh, it connects all of your business software and handles work for you, so you can focus on the things that matter most, the things you're good at for instance, instead of trying to cobble stuff together or code. To learn more and try it out, go to zapier.com slash Tim, connect the apps you use most, and let Zapier take it from there. You can do a million things. As one more example, Zapier lets you instantly engage with leads, send them to a CRM or spreadsheet, and then notify your team so they can act fast. And uh, like I mentioned very briefly, the beautiful part is that you can build the solution you need in minutes without writing code or asking a developer for help. So join the 4.5 million people or more at this point who are saving an average of 40 hours per month by using Zapier. Now and for a limited time, try Zapier free by going to our special link, Zapier, Z-A-P-I-E-R dot com slash Tim. That's zapier.com slash Tim for your free 14-day trial. Check it out, zapier.com slash Tim. This episode is brought to you by Peloton. I love Peloton. Peloton is a cutting-edge indoor cycling bike that brings live studio classes right to your home. You don't have to worry about fitting classes into your schedule, making it to the studio, or dealing with some commute to the gym. I have a Peloton bike in my master bedroom at home, and it is one of the first things that I do in the morning. I wake up, meditate for some 20 minutes, and then I knock out 
a short 20-minute ride, usually high-intensity interval training or HIT. Then I take a shower and I'm in higher gear for the rest of the day. It's beautifully convenient and has become something that I actually look forward to. And I was skeptical in the beginning. I didn't think I would dig it. And I really do. So you have a lot of options. For one, if you like, you can ride live with thousands of other Peloton riders from across the country on the interactive leaderboard to keep you motivated. I tend to use a lot of the classes on demand and have four to six of them that I've bookmarked and use over and over again. There are up to 14 new classes every day with thousands of classes on demand and there are a variety of workouts to choose from. 45 minute classes, 20 minute burns, hip hop, rock and roll, low impact or high intensity. Pick the class structure and style that works for you. Peloton has an amazing roster of incredible instructors in New York City. They really do have great instructors of every possible personality and style. And you can find one that you love, no matter what you're in the mood for. Personally, I use Matt Wilpers a lot, but I use a bunch of them. I'm promiscuous and enjoy classes from a lot of their instructors. With real-time metrics, you can track your performance over time and continue to beat your personal best. I did not think the gamification would work for me, and uh, they really hit the nail on the head. It does work, at least for me, tremendously well to keep me pushing consistently. So, discover this cutting-edge indoor cycling bike that brings a studio experience to your home. Peloton is offering listeners of this podcast a limited-time offer. Go to OnePeloton.com, that's spelled O-N-E-P-E-L-O-T-O-N.com, Enter the code TIMPODCAST, all one word, at checkout and get $100 off accessories with your Peloton bike purchase. Get a great workout at home anytime you want. Go to OnePeloton.com and use the code TIMPODCAST to get started.